up, y'all? It's Carl. What's up, y'all? It's Jake. And you're listening to Do You Even Lift Bro? Men Exercising Social Justice. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We deeply appreciate anybody who's listening out there. Today, we have a guest who will be joining us for our discussion. Say hi to the people's Jeff. Hello, everyone. Jeff is going to help us out in our discussion today as we talk about men and depression. Jake, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, Carl. How about you? Uh, pretty good. Weekend was pretty re- rejuvenating, um, although there's been a lot of sad news out there. Like, I want to believe that what we're doing in here in the studio contributes to the solution. Like, why else would we do this? Um, but there's a lot of men, specifically white men, causing a lot of violence and hurt out there. So yeah, I'm glad sure. we get to do this today. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so we're going to talk about depression, Jake. Any thoughts or experiences or what are your thoughts on depression? I guess my first thought is I don't really have like my own experience with it. I think I have experiences with anxiety, but I think there's some, I guess, some symptoms that kind of correlate between both. Um, But I think more about the future rather than I think a depression kind of thinks about more of the past and present together. Um, that's where where I my thoughts are, but I don't experience it. So yeah, what about you? I uh, been told I have it by therapists and counselors. and then the more I sort of dig into it, the less sure I know what that even means to be told that you have it. Um, I've been have it described as like everyone's day is sunny is that some people and people we call or people that have depression have cloudier days than others. Like that's and so it's not something that you have. It's something that sort of come about, comes about based on your situation and day to day stuff. So I'm actually really glad to have Jeff in the studio because Jeff is going to help me sort through some of that stuff (laughs) as it relates to masculinity as well, right? Because I do think, and I know actually that men tend to experience depression differently and also express depression differently. And so I'm looking forward to like giving some of these tools and resources to the people out there. Yeah, for sure. Jeff, who are you and what do you do? Well, I am a psychologist at the Health Network, um, and right now I'm working on the I-Team, which is actually a post-hospitalization team for the university. And so basically, after someone's done an inpatient hospitalization, usually after some kind of a suicide attempt or very near to a suicide attempt, um, they meet with my treatment team afterwards. But I also have a lot of interest in terms of men's issues and masculinity. That's where a lot of my um, work in graduate school and my dissertation was all about. We're going to go broad first and then we're going to try to nail this down, right? So can you give us sort of a broader definition of what depression even means or how it's talked about within the field? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think I want to know how is that different from being sad? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And that's what I was thinking about when you're kind of talking aloud of like, do I have it or do I not? Because it's a lot of times it's about gradations is what we're really talking about of the difference between sadness versus depression. Because in a lot of ways, um, depression to some degree is the sadness that feels like it just doesn't go away. It just hangs with us. And so it stays around. Um, The other big difference I think about it is that it's kind of, I guess, on two extremes. So on one side, I would agree with the point that like sadness is part of the normal human experience. And so I don't want to have it be something where we're creating a diagnosis out of just normal sadness. If you have a relationship and sadness is very normal, if someone close to you dies, sadness is very normal and very healthy to have that response. I think about depression, if it's more along the lines of something where it's nearly all day, every day, and it's lasting not just for a day, but like weeks. Hmm. So this just sticks around for weeks. It saps motivation. It saps energy. So it's just hard to even really care about anything. Um, it can mess with things like um, diet or sleep and so on, kind of either extreme of either having hypersomnia, so needing like 10 to 12 hours a night and still feeling tired, insomnia on the other side of just not able to sleep no matter what. And similar with diet, it can go to one or either extreme of either just hungry all the time or just not hungry at all, despite uh, no other big biological changes. So when I contextualize this concept of depression, is it like a, a disorder of senses? Like when I think about uh, like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia and stuff like that, like that feels like it's something someone was born with versus depression feels differently in terms of, is it more like alcoholism? Like you're more susceptible potentially mm-hmm. to it or is it something that uh, you're born into or is it a combination of both? Do we know? Yeah. I think the, there's a fun, the nerd in me was like getting jazzed, like, Ooh, yes, very good <laughs> complex question. Uh, um, I think the the answer that probably the most clean answer is, yeah, it's a little bit of both. Okay. There's biological variability in terms of just the levels of happiness. Some people just seem to be happy no matter what. And just that's just kind of how they present. And so there's a lot of factors related to biology. Um, it does seem to be related to susceptibility, though. It's not that if you have a family history of depression, that it's a guarantee that you'll have depression. 
It just means that some of those genetic markers are present, which it could increase the chances of that happening. Um, And so it definitely is, it's not necessarily you're born with it from the start um, because it's also how we respond to events that are happening that uh, really impacts how this plays out in our life. I have a hunch we'll get into a little bit later, but I think about, for instance, uh, when tough emotions come up, sometimes the difference of what happens with depression um, is if we're shut, trying to shut down that sense and trying to ignore it and eventually it just kind of like gets stuck inside of us almost. There's some interesting research about um, black men in particular and what happens to black men who aren't able to speak up against uh, acts of oppression and how that's if they're not able to manifest some of the anger and response, how that can actually turn into depression when they're kind of just stuck with this hopelessness on the other side of it. Okay, so that, that gives me a little hope then um, because one of the... Well, so it's weird to think about depression as something that can be viewed as a challenge. And I think men like want to rise up to challenges potentially, but I feel like the dynamics of depression actually like keep you from that kind of motivation. So is there, what's, is there like a cyclical nature to this or a seasonal nature or is it, can it happen? Can it be one instance where uh, it develops in somebody or does it, I don't know, like, is there a developmental process or mm. there's a lot of different factors that can all relate to depression. So I think the short answer is yes to every single thing. Oh, you mentioned. Like all of those can impact depression, which is part of what makes it, I think, so complex and hard to capture um, on that one, because um, for some people, it it will take one really hard incident. So let's say it was something where um, a person was in a car accident and they happened to be the driver and the passenger died while they were driving. That one incident could very easily lead to depression that just sticks around okay. afterwards if there's this guilt that's kind of unremitting of this feeling like it's not fair that I lived and they died. But for other people, it may take this over and over process of things like, uh, no matter what I do, I just can't seem to move forward. I can't seem to feel like I matter to the people in my life. I'm trying to reach out. I'm trying to connect. And I just feel like I'm getting left behind or left out over and over and over. So that makes me think about like oppression induced depression, right? Like Mm -hmm. if there's oppressive forces, like people against people of color, people with disabilities. So is there a higher prevalence then within marginalized identities for depression or is that not necessarily a thing? I don't know the data offhand on that. But last I checked, I don't think there was because there ends up being also a lot of protective factors that play into that. Um, so in particular, being able to be part of a community can, t- can contextualize some of those, peri- mm, those okay. experiences of oppression, which is a good thing in terms of being able to have a source of connection, of being able to have other people who understand what that experience is like and can make it be something where it feels less personal. If it's not uh, me is this person that's hated, but like this is against my entire group. This is people who hold my shared identity um, that can make it not as painful in the same way. It doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. I'm not trying to minimize that at all, but it may not turn into depression specifically. Sometimes. Nice. Thank you. Does depression look different in men and what's the prevalence? Depression definitely can look different in men um, because I think the typical presentation that we often think about is um, sadness in particular. So having an individual who just has tears in their eyes seems to be sad at almost anything, which can definitely show up for men. But men can often present differently, especially if they're in particular with emotions. If it's not something where they have permission to really show emotions, they don't feel like they've had it in their life or their family or they're from their friends. We may not see it show up as sadness because that's just been a rule that they've learned over time. Maybe not even at a conscious level is like you just don't show emotions. So sadness is not what we'd notice. It might be more on the other side of either um, just kind of like I was talking about the hopelessness earlier where the person just seems to have no energy. They can't seem to get up and get going. And usually they, they used to be able to enjoy certain things, enjoy hanging out with people. And now they just can't get going. They can't get moving. They don't have energy. They're just sleeping all the time. They may kind of flake out on things they used to show up to all the time and they just kind of want to isolate. And on the other side, sometimes it can show up as anger as well. Hmm. Other person is presenting more angrily on the surface, but what's happening is because they're in pain. The anger is what we see, but sometimes it's pain that's honestly self-directed of like, I hate myself so much. I hate everything about what I'm thinking and what I'm doing. I just don't feel like I matter. And that comes out as anger towards others, which does make it harder if our narrative around what depression is, is only related to the emotion of sadness, which is a part of it. When I think about the way men are socialized, then it makes more sense to me while it gets harder maybe to see depression in men or it's not the first thing that I think of when some dude is angry, right? Like I don't necessarily go directly to, oh, he must be in pain. I go, what the hell is his problem, right? And so like, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying we need to start giving angry men a pass. Like Mm -hmm. that's where this gets complicated for me in terms of what's the balance between acknowledging how socialization of men then changes the way depression manifests in us. Mm -hmm. But then also making sure that we hold men accountable to oppressive behaviors that could be the result of their expression of depression. And so um, I don't know how to do both. Like, will my 
understanding of how male behaviors create an oppressive environment. And so I try to check those male behaviors potentially could that potentially fuel someone's depression going, Oh, I just tried to express myself, but then got shut down. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to do. It, it seems like, it seems like shit. It is complex. I love what you're saying. Cause I would totally agree that um, both sides are really, really important. Cause if we think about anger in particular, um, if someone is acting angrily in a way that is oppressive to other people, like if they're yelling at someone else or if they're acting physically threatening towards someone else, like clearly they should be held accountable for that behavior and always tie that in with the understanding of they're a human being who suffers in the same way that I suffer, who doubts in the same way that I doubt and try and I'm with you. It's such a hard balance in a practical sense to figure out how do we both hold someone accountable for this and hold understanding for the fact that these behaviors make sense once we understand their context, once we understand what's going on for them. Um, but the good news is I think about the, the compassion side of it, of that understanding of why it makes sense that they're struggling can also lend itself to how to fix it too. Cause oftentimes that can be what softens the angers. If there's understanding about like, that is really not okay what you did there. And I get it. You've been hurting for a long time. We got to figure this out. That's true. Like actually, now that I think about it, when I do presentations on campus, particularly in front of men, the most resistant men in the room, I've learned to reframe as they might be potential survivors. And that's the only way that they're able to hold both is to be angry in that moment. Um, and I've seen the power of validating somebody's anger, but not necessarily excusing them for it. Yes. And seeking to understand deeper, like, tell me more about where this anger is coming from. Mm-hmm. Like, because I feel like I've legitimately been the first person to ever do that for a bunch of men on campus. And I've seen how that works. So I'm guessing then it's sort of relatable to the way we can work with men who express depression in oppressive ways. Yeah, because I think about what that communicates, even the way you're describing it there, Carl, is uh, first off, like I'm not afraid of your anger. It's not something that makes you a horrible human being for having this emotion in the first place. To, to have anger is to be human. How you express it is a whole different category of like, what do you do with that emotion that's inside your body? Of being able to have that permission, like, yeah, so you have anger. Okay, let's help me understand more of what the anger comes from. How, and adding that validation makes a huge deal to soften it, to figure out what to do with it. Because I think that's part of where the trap, went, um, especially when I think about uh, men with a lot of privilege. So cis, hetero, white men in particular will get stuck in this spot is my individual pain and seeing that part, but having a hard time understanding the context of, and by nature of the groups I am part of, this is all the privileges that I get on top of that as well. And it's a really complex interplay because I may be suffering hugely at an individual level and have tons of privilege at a societal level simultaneously. Um, It's the balance that I think about. I'm going to paraphrase a bit here, but um, adhering to some of these very rigid norms around masculinity of things like denying emotions or refusing to seek help, uh, risk-taking behaviors all lead to a whole host of negative outcomes of things like substance use, increased um, uh, like men die younger. uh, Gun violence. mm -hmm, Gun violence, all of these factors and hold the highest levels of privilege at the same time. And so I think that complexity is really hard to kind of navigate. And I think for me, um, think as a white hetero cis dude, um, is that like my thinking about the balance between my anger being a valid thing and it being an oppressive thing. And I think that has been something that I've been thinking about is like within my, me having anxiety and, and whether that is important. Like, I feel like Am I thinking about like my anger in a way of like, is this a justified and valid thing to think about? Like if I'm angry about like other oppressive men, then maybe that's like an valid thought. But if I'm angry for other reasons, like I got to reevaluate that. So I think that's something interesting to bring up. And I guess also thinking about like me being angry can produce burnout. As a produce what? Dude. Burnout. Okay. Produce burnout as a white dude doing the work. Mm. Um, me being angry about I think little things or even big things can manifest this like sense of hopelessness or burnout. Okay, cool. So Jeff, you talked about some of the common manifestations of depression. What are some other uncommon manifestations of depression that seem to be more common in men? Yeah. So sometimes we'll notice it more in terms of behavior as opposed to emotions. So it'll be things like, uh, for instance, I think about with uh, male veterans, a lot of times what we'll notice of when we're dealing with mental health concerns like PTSD or depression, it'll present in terms of uh, alcohol use. Okay. We won't notice that they're dealing with depression. Um, we'll notice that they're dealing with things like um, suddenly they're drinking a lot more than they used to be or they got into they're getting into more fights or they got into legal trouble and things like that because those behaviors are acting out in response to what they're feeling emotionally. 
So that might be more how it shows up as opposed to, um, again, like the typical presentation that we might think of of sadness or tears in the eyes. Like they may not show that. What we'll actually see is acting out kinds of behaviors. The other one I think about, it's um, part of what makes that scary as well, especially in my line of work these days in the post-hospitalization team is sometimes it'll present in terms of suicidal behavior that's not necessarily clearly stated of I'm trying to kill myself, but more like ambivalent suicide gestures. So things like um, driving really fast with a seatbelt off because they just don't care whether they live or die. Mm. Um, Or things like um, driving with your headlights off or driving um, really, really fast when it's unsafe that it may not be directly I'm trying to end my life, but more specifically about I just don't mind, which can be part of that manifestation of that sadness and depression that's coming up. I find that interesting because... Um, I know that I've heard men brag that they do those things. And I don't think I've ever realized until this point that maybe they were asking for help. And so when I think about what you said earlier about the community aspect of mitigating things like oppressive depression, then I wonder what the power is of men being able to emotionally support each other or care for each other. Because I do think one of the things that um, creates such higher rates of suicide within a certain age range for men and boys. And then just the, the violence in suicide rates uh, or in the way of suicide that men sort of do. Like, I feel like all of that is tied to us, that sense of hopelessness, which comes from a sense of lack of community. And we've talked about this before, Jake, of how men just don't necessarily connect any deeper than they want to, right? It's all couched in this no homo rhetoric. And I think, all of these mass murders, all of this self-killing can be tied back to this lack of sense of support or being able to connect even with your closest bros that you're told that you're supposed to be deeply connected with. So I think all of that adds together. Which if I add like, actually one interesting point on the research about um, lone actor violence in particular, one factor that stands out is that they're often rejected even by extremist groups. So some of these lone actor violence incidents have happened when even the extremist groups say, eh, you're too much for us and wow. don't want them to be part of it. So that community aspect is huge in terms of um, both helping someone out and reining in some of the more oppressive behaviors. If our group speaks out against that, of like, that's not okay. Fascinating. So if, if these dudes were got accepted by the KKK, they might have <laughs> they might not have killed people in like Texas and Las Vegas. I think about, so Timothy McVeigh is the example that comes to my mind on that one. He was part of a militia group in particular, um, I think in Idaho, and they actually kicked him out because his ideas were too radical. Um, and that was some of the early leakage that had happened of when they were going through the case later on of like, had we have known this was happening, might have been able to do something about it. Well, I think bringing it, bringing it down even more, like when I think about fraternities on campus and their decisions to either keep or kick someone off, like a lot of the the decisions to keep him is we can shape this guy. I wish, I mean, I wish it was done differently. <laughs> like from a mental standpoint, it's more of like a training aspect instead of a let's emote together thing, right? It's sure. like, how can we separate our penises as much as possible while we still support each other type of logic? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but that piece of information helps me contextualize some of the behaviors of male dominated groups in terms of we are unwilling to shape each other emotionally because we're unwilling to connect emotionally in the first place. And not like having connection or having that difficulty of being vulnerable, like, and you kind of mentioned some like unhealthy coping mechanisms, right? So how do those connect to you, Jeff? Like, what do you think lack of vulnerability and these coping mechanisms, how do they connect and how do they play a role within depression? I think very directly, because in essence, a lot of the uh, male oriented behaviors of how to cope end up being things that help me not think about it. And uh, so distraction is going to be a main one. So let me go work out. Let me go watch Netflix. Um, let me drink. Uh, that's about distracting or avoiding the emotion that's coming up. But that doesn't mean that the sense is gone. It'd be similar for talking about hunger. And the way you learn to deal with it is by trying to tune out from your hunger. It doesn't change the fact that your body is still craving nutrients in that moment. The same way with our emotions, that our body's craving connection or um, being able to have uh, success or whatever it may be or sleep sometimes. Um, it doesn't change the fact that needs there, but we shut it down. Uh, so some of those acting out behaviors are very much about trying to either pull out a different emotion. So if I'm smoking, drinking, or using something, it makes me feel differently in that moment. Maybe have fun, maybe just tune out from it for a bit, but I don't have to feel whatever painful thing I was having before. So I think they directly relate on that one. Because if my toolkit is based on a couple assumptions that I'm not allowed to ask for help, to have struggle at all is weakness and I'm not allowed to have that. It prevents me from doing things that are fairly helpful about being able to relate to other people and realize how normal this is to struggle, to be able to know that emotions is just part of our biology. It's not even something like some people have emotions and some don't. 
like everyone has emotions, there's ranges of how much that impacts us in our lives and how big or how small they are. But norms of don't ask for help and just get over it doesn't give you a toolkit of what to do instead when pain sticks around. Yeah, that resonates so deeply for me and my experience, like in the lowest part of my life, like, and I knew I couldn't help myself anymore. Like I was doing all of those distraction techniques. I think mine was rooted in alcohol and video games. Um, but uh, one of the hardest things that I did, which ultimately saved my life, I think, is really confront and say, I need to be able to connect with myself more in order to survive what I'm going through right now. And counseling has definitely helped me with that. But the hardest part, and remember, I'm couching hard, and we say this a lot in this podcast, is hard for us as men is very, very different from hard for women and gender nonconforming folks, right? Like there's a survival aspect to that, whereas this is just like be more emotionally intelligent. But one of the harder things that I had to overcome in my life is to understand how deeply connected my expressions of vulnerability with other people and opening myself up to connection really saved my life and helps mitigate my depression on a day-to-day basis. And so if you want real stories behind some of the theoretical concepts around depression, I think that there's tons of them out there. Um, and I'm one of them. Yeah, definitely. So why are we talking about depression in the context of do you even lift bro? Do you have any thoughts about that, Carl? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I feel like I'm going to say it's all connected a million times throughout this process, but it's all connected. Depression specifically, I think is one of those tangible locations of where we can reach out to men and be like, listen, are you feeling okay? Like if you are a dude in social justice and wanting to do the work, well, part of the work is helping people in men's lives. And it's mostly women. Let's not kid ourselves here. It's mostly women who care about men. And so if more men are able to care about men and say, you need to reach out or let me help you. I think overall it rejuvenates social justice communities in order to do more work because we're helping to carry some of that emotional load of identifying men who could have depression and then reaching out and helping them and getting connected to the places that they need to be connected to. And I also think um, talking about depression really fits into the context of the continuum of harm because I, I I asked the question to Jeff about vulnerability and unhealthy coping mechanisms because that's something I I still have, I struggle, still struggle with, with pornography, um, addiction and how me, I, me having these, like these feelings of being sad or down, being down. And I just, I don't want to think about it or don't want to even, even talk about it with anyone. So I just immediately go to porn. It's like, just like the snap like moment. And so how, how are we socializing ourselves to think this way and how can we find better ways to take care of ourselves as men, I think is really important too. And also, yeah, like you said, reaching out to other men is also, I think, a good way to start that. I mean, the first thing I was just thinking about is like with porn in particular, why that one makes so much sense to me that we're drawn to that in terms of if nothing else, like if we talk about what's the most available um, reward system we carry in our body, like with an orgasm, that's going to be a really powerful reward system to feel better, to feel differently. And when I just think about the level of novelty and stimuli that exists in porn today, there's just so much and so it's very types that if we need something to distract us, no wonder we're drawn to something that's like hooking into our evolutionary drive so directly. When I think about where we're at as, uh, I don't know, I guess men in this country, I know for a fact that saying go to counseling if you're feeling this stuff isn't the solution. Like that's not going to work in the current context. So Jeff, I was hoping you could provide us with more tools for a toolkit, if you will, to use some of your phrasing to how us as men can support other men in our endeavors to think about, talk about, and ultimately I don't know what the right word is here. Overcome depression. Can you add some more tools to our toolkit? Definitely. And I like the point you're saying, because I think um, the idea of like, hey, you need to go to counseling. That works great for some guys and for um, some it doesn't. And so being able to have strategies for both is really, really important. I think sometimes the most powerful thing we can do is saying, hey, I care about you. I'm worried about you and showing our own vulnerability first, because if someone is already doubting that it feels okay to show vulnerability and there's a lot of rules around that that are coming up in their mind, um, me encouraging them to then show me vulnerability is not going to work. What probably works better is me showing my own vulnerability and saying like, hey, here's what I've struggled with. Here's what's hard for me in life right now. Here are things that I worry about. Here's what really keeps me up at night. That makes it okay for the other person to be able to then say like, oh my goodness, I relate on this. So I think one thing we can do right off the bat is being able to just relate to other people's experiences. So it takes some of the stigma off of it being like, you're broken, you're wrong. There's something wrong with you as opposed to you're a human being who's suffering. I know what that's like. Let me show you a piece of my suffering. That can take a lot of the weight off. But sometimes the other parts about what house or depression are um, sometimes really small things. Little things like, Diet and exercise do help. So with exercise, of being able to get up and get moving because inertia is either one of the biggest, biggest 
uh, for more masculine metaphors here, biggest weapons in our arsenal uh, <laughs> <No> or, <worries. laughs> or biggest enemies that can get in our way. Because um, with depression, part of what happens is if I feel really down and I feel tired. I don't have any energy. I don't want to get up and get moving, which makes the whatever pile of things I didn't want to think about just get bigger. And then I have less motivation to want to even deal with an even bigger pile. So the more I stay still, usually the, the longer I want to stay still and the more I get moving, even anything like one foot out of the bed makes a huge difference to be able to get up and get moving. So little things like exercise can be huge. Breaking things down to smaller steps can be a big deal because, again, I realize these are painfully obvious kinds of strategies, but they make a huge difference about making uh, changes because if it's something where I have nine things to do, I won't start any of them. But if I can pick one small thing to move forward, so what's one thing I can do today to be proud of myself and that can help out? And my other favorite one comes out of the literature about positive psychology in particular, which is about doing good for other people. There's a lot about volunteer work and contributing for others that actually last. And it's um, some really cool studies. So one about gratitude in particular is one of my favorites. Um, they had people come into a lab and write a letter um, thanking someone, like just writing words of gratitude to a person who'd been really impactful in their life. And then they had them read that um, letter to the person. Like they had them call them and read the letter. And the happiness didn't, it wasn't just in that moment. It lasted for like a week later, their happiness levels were even higher. Okay. Um, and similar data comes up about if you have money to spend, um, you're much happier happier in the long term uh, if you spend it on other people than if you just buy something for yourself. So you can take the same $10 and you spend it on anyone else and it'll last longer. So long story short, I think things like volunteering work out well, especially because it plays into this idea of um, if feeling like a burden is part of the problem, it then gets to be I'm taking action. I'm doing something for other people. And that's one of my favorites when people talk about like, I don't want to be a burden on people. I don't want to just have them uh, having to rely on me. I'm like, great, then make it reciprocal. We both will take care of each other. We're both going to be doing nice things back and forth for each other. Okay. So what are your thoughts? Cause you mentioned like taking care of yourself. What do you think about sleep? Cause I think mm -hmm. when I have conversations with men about getting, are you getting enough sleep? It's like, no, he's, I sleep is for the week. And I was like, why do you, why do you think that? It's like, Cause I don't, I only need five hours of sleep. Like, but I see you and sometimes you're really irritable. So like, <laughs> and also for coming from someone that has trouble with sleep um, sometimes. So I guess maybe what are some strategies or what for men, what is, what's the benefits of sleep? Yes. I could nerd out for a long time on that one in particular about <laughs> sleep. Um, but, but I think about starting when you mentioned the anger one, that's a big piece. So if nothing else, Sleep gives us more ability to manage our emotions. If I haven't slept, my emotions are more likely to be all over the place. So again, if someone is already not wanting to have emotions in the first place, a great buy-in is like, I can help you with that. If you get more sleep, your emotions might be a little bit more drawn in. So you don't have to worry about that as much. So sleep can help out in terms of lowering that part of it. Um, sleep can also relate directly to depression where if you're just not sleeping because you're up thinking about, um, here's all the things that I didn't get done. Here's all the things not going well in my life. You're both tired and stuck in this rumination, which is likely to bring your mood down and keep that stuck in a cycle. So they're hugely related. And in terms of strategies, there's a whole range of things that range from um, simple to a little bit more tricky to pull off. Trying to have going to bed at the same time seven days per week is so powerful to changing our sleep because what happens is our bodies are ridiculously sensitive to changes in our overall schedule. And I think the easiest examples for anyone who's traveled, if you think about how hard it is to go from one time zone to a next or recently when we just had the time change, like if one hour different, feel how much harder it is to go to sleep that next day for one hour. And that's an easy one usually for most of us to connect to. Like, great. And that's why it's so important to try and keep it as regular as possible, knowing it's not always going to work out that way. But if it's really been a while of depression has been kicking up, I just can't get things going. Trying to have a regular sleep schedule will help. That way there's not as painful of a hangover going from the weekends to the middle of the week. And then I just redo it every single weekend. But little things like uh, the trick that someone taught me recently is with Netflix, for instance, you can apparently change the setting so it doesn't automatically start the next episode in 15 <laughs> seconds, which okay. is small. But that's the part with some of the research on this is about setting structural things so we don't have to depend on willpower. When it's late oh, at nice. night and I'm already worn down, I don't want to trust that I'm going to magically have the willpower to say, no, I don't want another episode. I want something that's going to block me from doing it so I don't have to make that decision. Um, so I think having the regular sleep schedule seven days per week is a big one. Um, some other classics are things like... Um, I'm trying not to use jargon on this one, um, but trying to use your bed basically just for sleep or sex and nothing else. Because part of what our brain does is it makes associations between things. And so if our brain learns my bed is the place that I do homework, it's the place that I uh, eat cereal, totally eat cereal, <laughs> whatever it is. Like, Shut up, do you? <laughs> not really. <laughs> 
<laughs> if we're doing all sorts of things in bed, our brain learns like, oh, it's not the place for sleep. It's the, the place for all these other things. And the more we pair it with just sleep and only being in bed if you're tired, the more we can link it. The last one I was going to throw out on that one for in, insomnia in particular is if it's something where you can't fall asleep for a half hour longer, as painful as it is in that moment, get out of bed and okay. do something different to go back to it. Because again, what our brain will do is associate the bed as a place for getting up, ruminating, not being asleep. And we want to go the other direction. So it starts giving us the signals of being tired around that time. Yeah, awesome. And I also think... I think it's interesting that like when I do have those conversations with men about sleep, it's like, oh, I can't get to sleep. So I like find other ways to do it. Like, and I think it has to do with a lot of unhealthy coping mechanisms. Yeah. They'll go, oh, I'll just jack off to porn and then go to sleep because it helps. Or I'll smoke a joint and then go to sleep. And I'm just like, you can't do that every day. Like that's just, that's just not good. That sounds like a challenge, but, Jake. I don't know if you should go that direction. Well, I, I don't know. It just doesn't, it sounds concerning to me. Yeah, like, is. and how we even like. I'm thinking about like Brene Brown and she says like we're the highest like self-medicating population like this for this generation. So and how those coping mechanisms numb what we're feeling to where we can go to sleep. Well, especially with the ones that you're mentioning, because it's uh, a lot of times you're doing short term versus long term trade offs there because you're right. Like all those can help you fall asleep faster sometimes like. Uh, if someone has just jacked off, like they might fall asleep quicker. If they've smoked, they might fall asleep quicker and they come with trade-offs because watching uh, porn, I'm assuming is done on the screen somewhere. So that's going to have the blue light spectrum being admitted into your eyes, which may actually make it harder to fall asleep. With weed, like you may fall asleep faster, but then if you need it next time to fall asleep, but it also impacts, I think it's stage four sleep. Um, you don't have as refreshing of sleep, similar with alcohol, like you can fall asleep faster, but it's not as refreshing. Mm. And then if it catches the problem on the other side of then I have a five hour energy or lots of caffeine to stay awake and stay energized, but then I can't fall asleep because I had all this, this caffeine. So repeat, repeat, repeat. They like to get trapped in a cycle of trying to fix it one night actually just makes the problem bigger sometimes. But I think, I guess the other part I would say, like the caution I always have, I think with men in particular is is starting with a place of validation of why it makes sense that they're drawn to that strategy first, that there's reasons why they're doing it because it has some effectiveness. The, the, the delicate balance is trying to focus on, oh my goodness, it makes so much sense that you're tired. You're trying to find something that works and here's the downside to it. How do we find a balance that maybe works a little differently? Cool. So thank you, Jeff. Before we sort of finish this conversation, I wanted to ask you, what are some local resources for not just men, but people to access who might be feeling the things that we were talking about today? And then for, you know, optimistically, our national audience, uh, what are some resources that they can have in terms of if they resonate with the things that we talked about today as well? At Colorado State in particular, so every CSU student has five sessions already paid for every semester. All you have to do for the first one is either come in person to our office or they can just call our main number, 970-491-6053. And anytime we're open, the first appointment is a brief screening where someone will ask you a little bit about what's going on, talk about the resources we have and get you connected. Um, or even sometimes it's just a quick conversation. We give you some strategies to get you started and go from there. But that's definitely an option, as well as there's an after hours crisis line. So anytime we're not open, evenings, weekends, holidays, um, there's also a line available, 970-491-7111. In terms of more national, um, northern Colorado area in particular, Summit Stone Crisis Center is my uh, one of my faves. They are a crisis center that's open 24-7, 365 as well. And similar, you can go to them in person. Um, you can call them and they have a lot of different options. Sometimes they'll just have a brief conversation if it's something where it's really overwhelming you're in crisis. But if it's something that's more intense and you need a place to stay for a couple of days, like if it's really intense thoughts of suicide, um, they have resources to have beds to be able to hold people there as well. Um, and the other part I think about as well with uh, suicide, anytime we're talking about things like depression or suicide, that's really important to bring up is not just the resources, but also the hope side. Um, and like, I'm a very, very diehard skeptic. Like I am a very strong scientist. And so when I think things can get better, it's not because of this belief that they will magically get better on their own. It's because I've seen the research on where it works. I've seen my own life experience of how my life has changed by looking at my own emotions, connecting with people differently and the research on neuroplasticity that our brains have the power to change drastically within our own lifetime. And I think about just how powerful it is if, if we can live through some of these hard moments and treat them as a moment of learning that we can gain so much experience to have greater compassion and greater wisdom moving forward after those. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeff, for being here. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things I want to say to anyone out there is if you're feeling this kind of way, if you're not sure what's going on, like we're here to say we hear you, we see you, we encourage you to ask for help, seek someone for understanding. And, I, you know, I'm never going to lie to our audience, Jake. It's hard as hell to to actually, if you're feeling these things, to pull yourself out of it a little bit. Like 
there's an element of difficulty to it that you kind of have to accept. It's not a linear path from the bottom to the top. Like it's very much an up and down process and circular for some folks. And I think going in with that expectation, but you, it's better to start now than to wait until it gets really bad. I just want the people out there to really think critically and self-reflect. And it's as simple as asking for help sometimes. And I know it can seem hard or feel hard in the moment, but I really hope that we help people get out there and do the thing. So to help us do this thing that Carl said, um, which is masculinity and depression, we have a special guest with us today and we're going to interview him. His name is Dylan. Say hi to the peoples, Dylan. Hi, peoples. If you don't mind me just asking, what are some identities that you hold true to yourself? Uh, So I would identify as a cis white man, heterosexual, and I identify strongly as a student at Colorado State University. Yeah, thank you for sharing. So Dylan, you heard what we discussed about Uh, depression when it comes to masculinity. Um, What are some initial thoughts and reactions to it? So yeah, listening to that, I definitely um, was, I was hearing things and they were hitting, they were really hitting hard for me. Um, I know a lot of the like coping mechanisms that Jeff talked about that are common. And uh, I think that you brought up Jake, as far as like substance abuse and um, pornography, those were things that um, in the times that I've dealt with depression that I've definitely used as coping mechanisms. The fact that that is something that happens and then to hear like how that can negatively affect um, people dealing with depression. There were a lot of things that I would think back and uh, one of my biggest struggles with depression was over this past summer. And I was just thinking about instances that I I was like, yeah, that's exactly how I did something. Um, that's exactly how I reacted. I isolated myself. I started smoking a lot of weed just to go to sleep um, because I couldn't get thoughts out of my head. And so it was, it was really interesting to listen to Jeff, um, explain all those things and for, to listen to it and think, yeah, that's what I was doing. And to think about that's why I was doing it. Even if I didn't, um, consciously like relate the two things, um, while I was going through it. So when you were going through that period of your life, do you remember what the feeling was? Like you didn't have a name for it and it sounds like you've kind of retro, like reflectively named it as depression or a reaction to depression at the time. What was like your thought processes around what's going on or were you not worried about it? Like what's, what was sort of going through your brain? So I definitely, at the time I knew something was wrong and a lot, a lot of it I think has to do with preconceptions of masculinity that I had from growing up. Growing up, I kind of had this feeling that I couldn't talk about being sad and I had to kind of put on the tough guy act whenever I would feel sad. Um, and then this summer I lost someone really close to me. Mm. And so that kind of triggered it. And for the first time in my life, I like had these emotions and I couldn't just hold them back anymore. And, um, thankfully from people I had met up here at CSU, I had started to kind of become a bit more emotionally, like willing to express those emotions. Um, but since they all came out at once with this one instance, it was, it was definitely just overwhelming. Mm. And I, at the time I did kind of think of it as depression, but I had, um, I've been a primary support person for a couple of people in my life that have struggled with depression. And so I was very wary of labeling it as that at first, um, as it progressed over time, I realized what it was. And I knew that like I had to label it as depression if I was going to make a change in my life that could help me out. And I just like saw patterns similar to like what I had seen in my friends who had been struggling with it. Uh, so yeah. How did your mind and your body shift when you were ready to sort of finally admit that this is depression? So when I was ready to admit it, I went from just kind of isolating myself in my room. Um, I only lived with one roommate at the time and I would kind of just avoid him. I'd go to work, I'd come home and I'd go to sleep. And, uh, body wise, I wasn't really doing anything. I was just sitting in my room. I didn't want to talk to anyone. And as soon as I was willing to recognize the depression for what it was, I was able to kind of kick into realizing that I needed support and that I needed to do something about it. And so it was during those first couple of months when I wasn't willing to recognize the problem for what it was that I was uh, smoking weed to go to sleep because I just needed to get the thoughts out of my head. I was drinking a lot and I wasn't, I was just kind of sitting in my room. I would occasionally see friends, but not often. And then as soon as I had, re- I realized and I recognized and I told myself, no, you're going through depression. You know, you need to do something about it if you ever want to feel better because I felt like shit the whole summer. So when I, when I realized that I shifted to making a point to 
be more social with my friends. One friend specifically who was up in Fort Collins with me over the summer. Um, he was one of the first, one of the first people that I told about it, um, even before my parents. And he was great. He made, he, he knew that I wouldn't want to do a lot of things because I was just, I was really sad and I didn't want to leave my room, but he made an effort. He would call me every day after I'd get off work and, um, invite me to go to the gym with him or invite me to go on a hike. So just be, like admitting that I was going through depression, opened it up for people close to me to, uh, offer me support and help. And that, that started the journey to recovery for me. And then it was also like helpful for me as, having been someone in a position of like a support person. I knew things that I would have done for the people that I cared about that were going through it. And I kind of pushed myself to do some of those things. Um, mainly like leaving my room, going and talking to my roommate, um, going out with friends, being social, uh, going to the gym a lot. I spent a lot of time in the gym, um, because it was a good way to take my mind off things and it wasn't drinking or smoking weed. Yeah. I think being able to name what's going on in our lives is so powerful. Um, even if it's considered like there's some level of stigma, I think still, around admitting to have having depression, just being able to name like, you know what, this is kind of what's going through, like what I'm going through. And now that I, it's, it's labeled, I think there's a certain energy that comes off of that for us to want to do something about it. So even hearing your story and how it sort of reflects in mine, like once I had a name for it and once and everything sort of just clicked into place and then I was like, okay, cool. Now that I can see, I can stare into the face a little bit. I can move forward and that can be a scary moment too, but I think it's such an important part of moving forward and carrying on through depression. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So you talked about um, some ways that you've kind of have a healing process or started a healing process. What are some other ways that you make sure that this process is still there or that you keep practicing healing? I started meditating to help with a lot of the anxiety. Mm. And so that's been really helpful. And I've made a point to, uh, to be social because I've, um, I've always been kind of an introverted person and I realized that while it's not bad to be introverted, it, uh, can definitely be helpful to, with the close friends that I have to be a bit more open and outward with them and to not be afraid to express myself around my friends and not be afraid to like go out with them and do things. And it's just been really helpful. And having confided in some of my very close friends, is helpful too, because I have those support people there to, uh, kind of check up on me. And if they like notice that I'm like acting a little down that day, they can check in and make sure everything's all right. And I know that a year ago, if they had asked if everything was all right and I was going through this, I would have said, Oh yeah, regardless. But, um, now I'm at a spot where I can honestly answer them when they, when they want to check in with me, I can give them the full, how I'm feeling, whether it be good or bad or somewhere in between. Uh, which is where it usually is. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so it's, it's definitely been really important for the whole healing process just to have people in my life to support me and then just to have my own like mental checks. um, And meditation has really been helpful with that. Is there something, and maybe meditation is the answer here, but is there something that you never expected to work that does work? For for anxiety, um, meditation, but for the healing process of, of the depression in general, I really didn't expect that um, confiding in friends would work. Okay. And that's, you know, 19 years of being a super introverted person nice. and then coming out and finally talking about my feelings with friends. It was surprising how big of an impact it could have. Awesome. Thank you. So you talk about how talking about stuff with your friends and being vulnerable, what are some links or connections that you maybe have thought about with being vulnerable when in, in relation to your masculinity? So yeah, that's a that's a big one that I think about a lot because I think that one of the big reasons I've never felt comfortable being vulnerable with friends, even like my very close friends, um, had to do a lot with my masculinity. I grew up in a very rural community, a lot of farmers, a lot of people who uh, emphasize you know masculinity over everything. So that's kind of how I was raised early on. And then coming to college, it was a completely different atmosphere um, where I was able to kind of get out of that box of masculinity and I didn't have to be this, you know, tough guy who doesn't show his emotions. And so it was kind of a process getting into that and like shedding these conceptions of masculinity that I had. It's helped uh, some of the friends that I've had, especially Thomas, who's with Men in the Movement. He's been a big help. Uh, as far as like being able to express myself with my friends and be vulnerable. I think more than anything, uh, realizing that I didn't have to keep putting on the big like masculinity facade, that was a big part of my healing process. At that same point, I was willing to open up to friends more. And I realized 
how my masculinity had been preventing me from doing that. When I was able to shed my masculinity a little bit more there, um, I was able to become more vulnerable. And that was definitely helpful being able to open up to my friends like that and get the help I needed. Was it easy? It was uh, definitely not easy. It was, it was a real struggle. And the roommate I'd been living with is kind of a macho masculine guy. Okay. And so that was difficult because my really close friends that were around were less into that, like into the masculine, the whole masculinity thing. So I could go talk to them, but the guy that I spent probably the most time with because I lived with him, uh, it was really hard to open up to him. And he was probably one of the last people um, that I was close with that I did open up to just because he had this whole like super masculinity vibe. It's so hard to open up to him while he's watching a basketball game or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a mechanical engineer and he's always talks about like working in a machine shop and working with big parts and okay. how he does all that. And it was always like, it's hard to open up when he's talking about these things, watching a sports game <laughs> and I'm trying to talk about my feelings and he's just like, Oh you know, you don't need to worry about your feelings right now. Just watch the game or something like that. I know that, uh, two years ago I would have been saying the same things as him and I can see like how I've grown as a person and how I've kind of shed these ideas of masculinity, um, as being much less important than I used to think they were. Um, so I think it's, it is definitely worth educating him. And I do make an attempt with my current roommates because they're of a similar variety, though I'm, one of them is a much closer friend and is someone that I'm more comfortable even in the, you know, like watching a football game and I can, I can open up with, with these guys a lot more, which is really nice. Um, and so that's actually helped them. I know I bring up points for men in the movement and they'll actually listen and have a conversation about it. But I think that as like men who support each other, it's, it's really important for us to be willing to shed our masculinity and to like learn about why that can be helpful. The roommate I mentioned that I'm, that I'm really close with, we lost a friend that we went to high school with last month and that spurred conversation a lot more about feelings and how we felt about it. I noticed how he had grown just in the little while between like school starting and that happening. Uh, just from the conversations we'd had, I noticed how he'd grown when we were talking about that because we were both able to express how like deeply sad it made us to lose that friend, just things like that. And so it's it's definitely having seen some growth out of uh, my roommates. I, I think it's definitely worth educating because it can help make a difference in people's lives. Yeah. And hopefully it doesn't take a death to really get there, right? Yeah. Hopefully it doesn't. I can say hopefully for a fact that uh, that's not what it took to get there. Okay. That was just an example of a time that it was noticeable. For sure. Would you consider like being part of Men in the Movement and doing this work as a healing process and also even being in the booth with us today? Yeah. So um, Men in the Movement has been a really big part of my healing process. And I'm really thankful that I've, that I had Thomas to uh, get me involved in it and like show me that it was a thing because I don't think I would have known about it otherwise. And then this podcast, I've actually been really excited about because other than about four really close friends that I've known my whole life. I haven't actually shared this story with anyone. And so this has been the first time that I've kind of gone through my journey and put it into words outside of uh, like my very personal um, space with my friends. And it is, it feels as good as I thought it would. <laughs> That's what's up. Yeah. To, to kind of put it into words and to talk to you guys about it. So yeah, this is definitely like a big help in the healing process and it's kind of a weight off my shoulders to get it out there and, get it beyond just my personal space. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Um, so we know that we're more than just our masculinities. So we want to ask you a couple uh, unrelated questions. Is that okay? Yeah. Cool. Um, so if you had were to have a, a, like any talent, what would it be? Oh man, any talent, what would it be? I actually think I would really like to learn to play an instrument. And I'm if I had to choose one, I think I'd go with the piano because I've... Oh. Just, I really enjoy um, music, but I'm not musically talented <laughs> at all. I I played the drums in middle school and that was the extent of it, but I think playing the piano would be really cool, especially with the street pianos they have out here. Just go and sit down and play one. You show off a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, would you rather have a popsicle or an ice cream cone? Uh, ice cream cone for sure. Flavor? Uh, pistachio. No shit. All right. That's cool. What would be something that you would love to see? 
Oh, something I would love to see. I'm definitely a big fan of like uh, mountain valleys and uh, being in the mountains. Actually, I had, I, oddly enough, I had a conversation about this last time I was in the mountains. I was up at the CSU mountain campus and we were talking about our favorite thing to see. And it was actually something that I saw on that trip. And it was the Aspens changing colors um, while we were up in the high mountain valley. Nice. Would you rather be sticky or smelly? Oh, I think I'd go with smelly. <laughs> really? All right. <laughs> Why Colorado State University? Ooh, so that one's actually kind of a long story. When I was in high school, I was planning on going to the University of Wyoming, um, but I was applying for the Betcher Scholarship, so I had to have an in-state um, institution that I was applying for. And I made it to the semifinals round of that. And so I got the really nice Betcher semifinalist tour of CSU and they just blew my mind with all that stuff. And then when I toured Wyoming, like two weeks later, it was just nowhere near <laughs> the same quality. That's um, right. And so much to the dismay of my parents and brother who are all UW alum, as mm. well as my grandparents, I decided to go to CSU, but it's definitely been a, a great decision. <laughs> <laughs> that must've been a shot in the heart. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so what was one favorite activity you've done with your friends? Probably my favorite thing to do with my friends is to go out and hike. Um, and a lot of that includes like just hiking, but a lot of it also includes like free climbing on rocks. Um, I don't know if I like the inherent risk or if it's just fun to climb, but, but yeah, I really enjoy doing that stuff with my friends. If you only had one job for the rest of your life, what would it be? Um, only one job for the rest of my life. Well, I think I'm kind of on, on the track for that is that I want to do medical research. So I think it'd be really yeah. fun to be a medical researcher for yeah, the rest of my boring. life. that's pretty boring. That's from the uh, microbiology <laughs> student over here. Okay. Word. Thanks, Dylan. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on here. No worries. So we'd like to thank Jeff and Dylan for joining us in this podcast. Um, their wisdom and knowledge and um, stories have really kind of helped this podcast. So that will do it for this episode of Do You Even Lift Bro? Men Exercising Social Justice. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email wgac at colostate.edu. That's wgac at c-o-l-o-s-t-a-t-e dot edu. Huge shout out to our partnership between the Women and Gender Advocacy Center and KCSU here at, at Colorado State University for actually allowing this podcast to happen. For more content about masculinities, check out menofthemovement.blogspot.com. For more information about WGAC, go to wgac.coloestate.edu. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Music production by Xavier Hadley, aka Zavley. Check him out at soundcloud.com slash Xavier Hadley. That's X-A-V-I-E-R-H-A-D-L-E-Y. Deuces.